it's so important to look at things from an outside-in perspective, how the world is shifting, because even if you craft the perfect brand experience, it will only land based on what's happening in the world and how people are feeling. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports, media, entertainment, engagement, new things, old things, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co-host, Tom Richardson. Tom, the end of August, we are here. Wow. Less than two weeks to go, Joe, for the new semester. You ready? Yeah. yeah. Um, two interesting weeks. time, the summer of soccer. Uh, coming to not a close, but uh, another crescendo with the Women's World Cup and Messi mania coming to New York, which will be interesting. By the time this plays out, people will know whether he have play, has played or not against the Red Bulls. Um, oh, that's but, right. That's uh, tomorrow. That's tomorrow night, correct? Saturday night. Yep, yeah. Saturday night. And it's um, sold out. Wow. It was, it, it's, it's a big event in this yep. area. Yeah. Cool. And, and, and he's going to be in another, he's going to be in another championship for another cup. Yes, because they won the other day for the U.S. Cup. Cup, and I think that final will be played in a few weeks, like September twenty seventh, I believe, yeah. or something. So, yeah, the, this, the the messy magic in America continues. It's crazy. And, uh, and by the way, the craziest thing is they probably won't make the MLS playoffs because Inter Miami was so bad before he got there. But right. so anyway, um, and then the other thing I just wanted to touch on before we get to our guests, which will kind of segue in is the other football, the American football, and all the amazing things that will be happening as we get to kickoff and YouTube TV and all the other things that um, the NFL is going to have in store as maybe one of the biggest or most exciting seasons in a long time, especially in New York. Yeah, I mean, and also um, in typical fashion, as we approach the end of the summer, the, the sound we always hear every year at this time is the sound of all the oxygen in the room moving to football, uh, NFL mm -hmm. and college football. It's incredible uh, as the season kicks off, how much coverage is being given as is always the case with football and America's obsession with this sport, which maybe we can talk about a little bit with our guests because it's so fascinating. So part of that, Joe, is I, I wanted to ask if you were caught up on hard knocks as oh, I yeah. am. Okay, yeah. good. I think it's been a good season. It's been what three episodes so far, but um it's it's been really fun. I'm, yeah. I'm I think they've they've pulled off another uh, successful uh, season of it. One of the one of the things they've done is making people like Zach Wilson, which uh, for yes. many people in New York didn't think that was possible. But um, it's interesting when somebody like Aaron Rodgers comes to New York, all the stories that have been written about him for twenty something years suddenly become new again. So like right. the New York Post had to go and do a story of oh by the way Aaron Rodgers played in junior college. Well. Everybody around the world knows that, except for people who live in New York. So it became like a three-page story in the New York Post this week. But it's going to be going to be interesting for both the Jets and the Giants um, as they try to do something. As I segue into our guests to make their brands cool. And yes. Our co our, our co guests today are all about awareness and branding and packaging and bringing to light what's cool for their clients and learning how to, or figuring out how to hack popularity. It's a phrase I got from the article. So I let's thought, go. I love that phrase. Yeah. Go take us it. there, Tom. Okay. So um, we are really happy to be joined by two women who have an interesting agency called Cultique. 
Some of you who read the New York Times may have seen a pretty significant write-up on Coltique and Linda and Sarah, uh, I think about a month ago, it's quite recent, uh, particularly focused on their work with Cirque du Soleil. But it's a really interesting agency that uh, is focused on cultural analytics. I guess that's one way to say it. they can describe it better than I. But the idea of trying to get ahead of the curve on cultural developments and cultural trends, it's a really fascinating idea, particularly at this moment in time, or this point in history, I should say, because of all the accelerated pace of change that we witness with everything from social platforms to media businesses, streaming, uh, new content creation, etc. So we are really thrilled to have the two co-founders, CEO uh, Linda Ong and her co-founder Sarah Unger, both um, very accomplished women in terms of their work throughout their careers in marketing, advertising, and branding, really fascinating backgrounds. It sounds like culminating with the creation of Coltique in 2020 and their, uh, their kind of right place, right time experience that it appears to be right now. So welcome, Linda and Sarah. Thank you, Tom. Great really to good. and Joe. Yeah, Thank really you. nice to have you guys. You know, I'm just going to, Joe, kick it off with a reference to that article, and, and, and we will post this in the show notes. We'd encourage everybody to read it because it's a great story. But this idea of hacking popularity, that was the one sentence, guys, that's, that really stuck out to me. This idea of taking all your vast and diversified experiences in business and marketing, branding, et cetera, and, and specifically focusing on something that a lot of businesses, a lot of brands have trouble doing, which is really striking the right tone for brand refreshment, rebrands, et cetera. And it sounds as though you're onto something that is probably more important that's ever been based on the external factors that all businesses face, much of much of them out of their control. So that said, can you share your own version of the origin story, how it came together and how you guys decided to take the plunge with this new agency? Sure, I'll take that. Um, thanks, Tom. I, you know, Sarah and I have both, before we even met each other, had a long career in um, television, um, branding, as well as brand strategy. And I think I had have had my own business in one form or another, this is Linda, um, since 2000. And um, one of the first brands I worked on as an independent strategist was Bravo in 2004 and rebranding that from a very kind of polite art, polite arts and culture network to a pop culture powerhouse. And I really learned the power of culture there. It gave me a huge professional heart on, if I can say that on this podcast. And um, I just wanted to always work. I'd worked on amazing brands before, but none of them had had the cultural impact that Bravo did and still has. Um, and so I just really wanted to, I was convinced there was a way to harness and study culture, but I didn't know how to do it. And none of my clients really understood it. And actually, when I started talking about culture in 2008, they literally thought I was talking about yogurt because culture was not, you know, right. it's only since like 2014 that the word culture has really ticked up in, in Google searches. Um, and so have been working really hard on this for a long time. It was only when I met Sarah, I found a real partner um, and, a, and a nice younger partner, which was important to me because I'm getting up there in age. 
And um, she'd been looking at a lot of the things that I'd been looking at. So for us, it was a very, I'll let you her tell you her side of the story. But for us, it was very natural. And I think, you know, my sort of starting looking at um, creating a discipline out of culture and hiring analysts who were trained in semiotic brand analysis and really looking at the world more like anthropologists than marketers. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that, you know, social media was really firing up in 2008. And then we know like after 2015, 2016 with the Trump election, people were more and more aware of culture. And then of course, pan- the pandemic really, and that's when we launched the company coincidentally, we launched it in 2020 during the pandemic, but we found that, um, you know, our business grew 54% because nobody could figure out what was going on. And so we really, that was our proof of concept was that we knew that the data that had been lauded for, you know, a decade before was insufficient in a time of total change. Sarah, you do your take now. Yeah. I think you articulated it well. I think when working on really interesting brands, I've worked on all different kinds of brands, even pre-entertainment. One of the things that always fascinated me was how um, often, at least in the world of marketing and advertising, you're operating in somewhat of a bubble. You may be an expert in the brand you're working on specifically, but that's only one part of the equation. And that's no fault of the people who are working on the brand. If you're launching campaigns, you have other business metrics and KPIs to keep up with. It's really impossible with how much culture shifts and certainly at the pace it shifts now to be an expert on everything that's changing in terms of consumer tastes and what's accelerating and what's decelerating. And I think over the years, I became of the mindset that that was sort of a key step in the process that was missing for a lot of people. Instead of looking at things um, from inside out, from the brand perspective, it's so important to look at things from an outside-in perspective, how the world is shifting. Because even if you craft the perfect brand experience, it will only land based on what's happening in the world and how people are feeling and the way people are processing information or whatever you have to offer. And so Linda always gives the example when we talk about our discipline, how you know our clients are the ones building rocket ships and we are reading the atmosphere. And that is really, really crucial to... Um, Uh, whether it be a brand, a product, a new product, a TV show, a film, anything you're launching, like how it gets received is based on weather conditions. And so when I met Linda and understood that she had dedicated um, herself to focusing exclusively on this discipline, I was enthralled and just felt like this is how I can make an impact on, you know, businesses who want to connect with the world at large in a more profound way. How do you guys go in and and, and kind of offer up and convince brands that may be a little bit skeptical on this is what they need to do? Is it based on your history or Is it based on research that you guys do? So how do you go in and kind of start the process and make them excited about everything that Cultique can offer? Um, Well, you know, interestingly, in my early days, I had to do a lot of pushing. And now it's people are 
literally less nervous about it. I think that some of that is the track record. We have, you know, a, a great list of historical, I've been doing this since 2008. So I have a great list of wins in uh, historically that we can speak to. And um, we've been part of some of the most interesting and talked about um, brands and content um, of recent years. So that that helps. But I think it's also really, Joe, it's a great question. I think it's a fundamental realization that the traditional consumer research models can only get you so far. And like we like to say, and you know this, the minute a consumer says something in a focus group, well, if you have a one to two year window where you're in product development or brand development, that's too late to act on it. If you can act on it tomorrow, great. But if you are in a you know typical business cycle, you need some time. And so what's really interesting is we don't talk to any consumers. A lot of our clients have tons of data and focus group research and surveys, you know, and actually Sarah likes to say a lot of our clients who include a lot of tech clients are information rich and insights poor. They don't know what to do with all that information. So we take all of that information, we take all that data, and we look at what are, you know, what is the brand, what are the brand goals, what are the business goals, what are the audience goals, and really forge a custom, a very bespoke view on culture based on that lens. And then we try to widen the aperture. A lot of times our clients and by the way, the real answer to your question, Joe, is once they work with us, they see what the power is. And, you know, that's that's its best selling tool. I have clients that are legacy, you know, from 20 years ago. But I think that really when what a lot of the best compliments we get in a meeting tend to be things like that makes so much sense. We never would have thought of it. <laughs> it's right there. But because of what Sarah said so articulately, you know, the, the blind spots are the blind spots of the organization. Our blind spots are the blind spots of culture. Culture has plenty of blind spots, but culture is an ecosystem. And, and what a lot of we, the work we do is connect dots in ways that are not readily apparent. But when we expose them, like conversations that don't seem adjacent, but are totally adjacent. And Cirque du Soleil is a great example, right? It's a great brand. What we saw is they have amazing brand equity and goodwill. What they lacked was currency. Nobody was talking about Cirque du Soleil, especially younger audiences. But if you ask anybody, what do you think about Cirque du Soleil? 99 to 100% of the time, people spoke of it very, very fondly with a great affinity. When was the last time you went to a show? In my case, it was 20 years before they called us. So that to us was one one issue like how do you recapture the cultural relevance and the cultural impact that that brand had you know when it launched 40 years ago and when it came to the states i remember going to the first show in battery park city but what happened is the perception of the brand has not has not evolved with culture however when we looked at their tiktoks which were amazing and had millions of followers what we saw is it's a very relevant brand to gen z Gen Z happens to be super interested in things that are core to the DNA of Cirque du Soleil, like performance, artistry, athleticism, spectacle, right? All these mysticism and even, you know, celestiality. Gen Z and millennials are fascinated with astrology and the sky and nature and all the, and the sun. So we saw that Cirque du Soleil 
and and everything that stands for that people you know that's kind of latent that just needs to be pulled out people thought too much about the circus they didn't really think about the otherworldly mystical avant-garde aspects of the brand so we just needed to focus that more and as well as get in those conversations with those younger audiences, which were in totally operating in parallel with the brand, but not talking to. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, and 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 it literally like us saying, don't focus on the Cirque, focus on the Soleil to the internal team, you know, it, it from, you know, and we were working with the growth department. So we're not working with the, the live event people, but the, the con, the brand have been so associated with the live event. And our goal was to open up arenas in which they could create other revenue streams that w- that they would have cultural permission to do, right? So it's just sometimes kind of awakening the team to things that maybe they took for granted in the brand or forgot about or had just kind of faded with time that are sometimes those things become super salient again after 40 years. So I was thinking with the, your mention, I was going to ask you actually about the old school approach to introducing new ideas to customers through focus groups, uh, which Joe and I sat through throughout our career when we were younger. I know at the leagues and at AOL, we did a lot of focus groups. Um, you'd pick a group, one group in New Jersey, one group in Cleveland, one group in Phoenix or something. You know the drill, you go around. And it, what looking back on it, it was kind of a ridiculous waste of time, uh, but we all did it. And we didn't, we started, I can't remember what year we started talking about beyond demographics when you're considering your audience, Mm -hmm. psychographics. And Mm -hmm. it feels as though the psychographic thing is obviously closely related to what you're describing. Mm -hmm. It kind of started to reveal itself in many ways with audiences and individuals when social media really took off. So I want to ask you both, Mm -hmm. do you think the advent and rapid growth of social media in the late aughts once uh, Twitter became popular, Facebook was was growing, Instagram was launched in like 10 or something like that. That's when it was kind of easier to read the zeitgeist in many ways, just by paying attention. It was almost like the all the stuff you wondered about was revealed in almost real time about virtually any major thing going on. What are your thoughts about that vis-a-vis social media and how has that changed now that let's, and I, I think I'd, I'd say this generously, social media has been corporatized in ways that are um, not necessarily positive. Well, Tom, I have so many thoughts on every element of the statement you just said, be it demographic, psychographic, how social media has changed everything. So I'll just go through some of them because I'm very stimulated by what you said. Um, I think social media changed the game in terms of our ability to reflect on, archive, and um, process culture overall. So obviously pacing, totally different. Trend cycles are a lot faster overall. You also have a lot of people who are really good at you know, labeling, categorizing, memifying things in easily shareable packaged ways, intangible cultural vibes um, in a very telegraphic and quick way. So in terms of our ability to connect and share and um, publicly acknowledge the zeitgeist, social media made it that much easier. It also made it so that when we talk about like monoculture, there's a lot of cultural debate on this. If you were to ask like 20 cultural analysts, if they think the monoculture ever existed, you'd get 20 different answers probably. 
but it certainly made it so that um, certainly fringe communities could have much more prominence just based on being extremely online and savvy at the internet. And that's a beautiful thing in many ways. In terms of what it meant for psychographics and demographics and how marketers and brands connect to people, it made it more accessible and more challenging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and exactly. I think yeah. that I think that in in terms of targeting people via demographic, I remember this article in I was in an ad trade. I can't remember which, like I want to say it was over 10 years ago that said demographics are dead. <laughs> so we've been heralding the end of demographics as a poor way to categorize people, though humans love to categorize. It's what we do best. It's how we process information. Um, still, you see uh, marketers struggle with a better way to you know, market to people based on um, psychographics, et cetera. Linda and I really try to lean into understanding um, groups of people based on cultural sensibility rather than even psychographics or demographics. I think because um, culture and the internet has shown this, different groups of people can congregate around shared affinities and cultural interests and cultural tonality in pretty surprising and unexpected ways. I think that's how we're looking to um, understand uh, communication between people overall. And so when Linda and I look at culture, we look at culture on a curve. And so we tend to really kind of try to track momentum. Um, And if you were to think about the shape of a bell curve. On the curve, you have concepts that are uh, residual. Those are more traditional, time-honored, well-known in culture. You have concepts that are dominant. That's the top of the bell curve. Things that are zeitgeisty that you might talk about at a dinner party. And then you have concepts that are emergent overall. And that's the uh, top of the bell curve. Things that are more fringe that could possibly go dominant if they get the right cultural push. And so we tend to really look at and understand culture through those sensibilities um, because we think demographics just just don't don't do the job in a way that accurately captures the complexities of culture overall. Is it possible to have things in the zeitgeist today? Absolutely, it is. You just have many more and they turn over very frequently. But if this summer has shown us anything, if you look at things like the Taylor Swift Eras Tour, you can absolutely have huge cultural moments um, that uh, many different groups of people can congregate around still. It's still very much possible. It just has to hit the right cultural tone. You're suggesting that the cultural sensibilities can overlap demo groups such as Gen Z, Gen X, Millennial, etc. Completely. I'm more interested in what 20-year-olds and 60-year-olds have in common. That is very like Taylor Swift, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Well, and you know, we see even in the elections, you know, we have another election coming up. And you know, after every election, there's some pundit who's like, wow, all Latinos don't vote the same, or all women don't vote the same. And it's like, yeah. Because now we're in such a fragmented society, right, that there's more, I'm sure you've heard the words uh, intersexual identi- identities, right, more mm-hmm. intersexual identities, and they don't want to be 
you know, I'm an Asian woman, but I have such a varied background that I probably have more in common with people with European parents than necessarily Asian. But, but you know, that's not the way it gets classified on a census form, you know. So mm. just understanding that humans are, and, and look, you know, the demographics came out of the census. Advertising borrowed that from census, you know, categories. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it was, it, it's an antiquated model. And, you know, it is obviously the advertising business is in a lot of disarray right now. But, um, you know, we also have been creating cultural segmentations for our clients, because even as Sarah said, psychographics and demographics don't always get at it you know, the way you need. But I, I think that the idea is not to replace any of the consumer research, but we definitely feel that if you're not looking at that emergent area and looking at what has momentum, then you are, um, you know, really missing what's next. Uh, and, yeah. and that's what consumer research just cannot look at. I just wanted to add one thing, Tom, before I know you want to ask mm -hmm. questions. You know, when we talk about culture, and I, it's important, I think, because a, a lot of people, not saying you do, but a lot of people assume that we're only looking, that's, people have said to me, oh, you do social listening. And I would say for us, social media accounts for a minority of what we look at in culture. It can be directional, but it is very trend driven. And we tend to look at things on a more longitudinal basis and look at real shifts that are happening either because of generations or economic or climate change or migration, all these major paradigm shifts, which affect the way people see the world. So that can be expressed. Yes, that can be expressed in social media, but not everybody's on social media. So that's only, you know, that in itself is a self-selecting group. But we also look at, we, I did one of my first projects um, in, a, in a semiotic cultural analysis was for Animal Planet back in the day. And we looked at museums, we went to pet stores, we went to dog runs, you know, where are things being discussed? And we use discuss, you know, in quotes, but where is there a conversation that culture is having? Um, the art world is very um, fertile ground for us to see how things are, you know, aesthetically moving and what's important, who's important, um, fashion and sports is a big, you know, to get back to sports, sports is a big part of culture, especially now. So yeah, we're I, always looking in all these arenas. I would love to talk about sports in a second, but a quick follow-up question. Sure. When you made that comment about how you watch these clients build rocket ships, but you're doing your best to ascertain what's actually happening in the atmosphere so that rocket ship can be successful and get to yeah. get to its destination. Um, it it feels, and I have to ask this because of what's going on right now, particularly uh, this week, it feels like this would be quite applicable to politics. So if you think of, let's say, younger candidates, yeah, like think of Obama in like 2006 or, or even what we saw this week with the heretofore not widely known Vivek Ramaswamy. Right a certain kind of rocket ship, whether you like them or, or not, but they're, they're kind of like, you, you kind of get a sense that they're trying to read the tea leaves culturally, like where they can, like what lane they can get into. Yeah. So do you think, so you think are political campaigns using this kind of stuff? Like have you guys ever worked in politics? I, I don't think they necessarily are. They, um, they might be, I don't, I'm not, you know, I would hope they are. I think that the issue we have been asked, we've turned it down. I think for us, um, you know, politics is one of those areas that 
Um, we've stayed away from in part because there are just so many cooks that having a cultural voice would just be one more of many. And I, you know, Sarah and I like to work directly with clients and brands as opposed to work through an agency or whatever, because we can have a direct impact. Right. So I think, you know, we're constantly looking at political, the changing political landscape and how that affects uh, people's perceptions of the world. And in fact, Sarah and I very much, we've been pitching our clients, we want to do a study on the heartland, because we feel it's very misunderstood. Um, But inevitably, you wade into political waters there, which is totally fine. But the purpose of that is not to be political. So I think that's how we address it. Because for us, it's part of what we look at, but uh, it just hasn't been, for many reasons, something we really wanted to focus on. But you're right. Somebody I, yeah, I I would agree that if a candidate does well innately, it's part in part, not exclusively, but certainly key factors that they have a good um, take on cultural sensibility. And if you read mm-hmm. analysis of candidates who have done well, that's typically part of it is an ability to speak to and capture um, sentiments that may have been uh, in the background, simmering strongly, but not necessarily um, so obvious that they were captured by competitors. So, yeah, and we actually we're always monitoring what's going on politically in this country, but we factor it into other things. Yeah, I do think political candidates in interesting ways. Um, you know, I have talked to very smart people who work in, you know, data strategy. And so it kind of goes back to one of your initial comments about kind of where we fit in with focus groups and other more traditional forms of testing. And I think um, just to go back to that for one minute before we pivot into the sports specific conversation, I love when people take our sort of cultural work we've done and then test it. Like that is very satisfying for me to see. I love when clients do that. That is actually one reason why I'm like, (laughs) we're pointing people in the right direction because when people test the stuff we uncover, it is very validating. And so I think we are a really nice compliment. If you're going to spend the time and money, whether it's executing focus groups, surveys, whatever data science modeling you want to do, I think it's great to have people point you in the right direction before you spend all that money. So we talk about those forms of um, research as being more validating versus anticipating. We are better at anticipating. So I think that's a really interesting um, thing for people to know kind of where we fit in as a total complement into that process. Some organizations need a stat. They need a stat to be able to make a decision. That's okay. We can point you to finding that stat in a better way than you would have otherwise. And I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, that kind of gets to the the other part of our conversation. You've talked a little bit about Cirque du Soleil and the big event, which obviously sports is about big events. But for the most part, sports, especially on the highest level, is risk averse. And this is the way we've always done things, and we're going to keep doing them this way. Uh, you all have done some stuff in soccer, which is probably more culturally relevant today than it's ever been, at least in North America, as it yep. is in the rest of the world. Um, yep. How do you how do you combat that? Whether it's with sports or a traditional brand saying, "Well, you know, this is this is the way we've done it. Why should we change now if, if things are going well?" How do you kind of 
make them aware of the rainy day and what are some of the parameters that are put on that? Well, I think in the case of soccer, I'm, I'm happy to take a shot at this. Um, it's a great question. You know, ever since I've been working in the culture business, soccer has been what we call a permanent emergent, meaning it's constantly on the cusp of going mainstream. And every World Cup, people are like, oh, this is going to be the year. And it never does. And so I think that itself begs that question, Joe, like what should be done differently, you know? And I, unfortunately, the ladies didn't win this World Cup or do very well. So, you know, there's- well, the, Amer the American ladies, the Spanish ladies. The American ladies, ladies well. sorry. Yes, so. the American ladies. <laughs> the ladies, Spanish ladies did great. But the American ladies did not go, do as well, which was, you know, unfortunate. But, you know, with Messi coming on board um, with Inter Miami, and we did actually get to work on the branding of, of and the naming of that brand um, from the perspective of people who live in Miami. Um, you know, hopefully, maybe Messi will help turn the corner. But um, I, I think that that the fact that it has been a permanent emergent should be the question that soccer league, you know, leadership should be asking how, how do we break through to mainstream? This has been you know, decades that it's just been on the cusp. But that raises I, another question. Like, what? But yeah. what is? Maybe we have to rethink what mainstream means because typically in sports, Joe and I have long careers in the sports business. Yeah. It typically relates to television ratings, right? And yeah. number of tickets sold. Right. So you can look at the NBA versus the NFL to the and team. advertising and advertising. And, yeah, and sponsorship and advertising. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, that's, that's obviously cool. part of it. Big part. Let's track it. Um, but you look at. NBA versus let's say NFL. NFL is leading on all known metrics, revenue, yeah. sponsorship size, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, and I don't have anything to prove this, but it feels like culturally NBA, NBA is a more important sport yeah. in America. Yeah. And maybe that's my bias. I'm, I happen to be a fan of both. Those are my two favorite sports. And I well, used to work at the NFL, I'm so I, I'm a little yeah. bit biased about football, but it feels like NBA, just partly because of the nature of the athletes, Right. And the way they use social and the way they've done all yeah. these interesting tech partnerships, it's, they're, they're kind of like doing something that lets them break through, but they're not getting the traditional measurements to say they're dominant. Well, I, I think you're right. And I have been watching the NBA, their ascendance and their eclipsing of NFL and culture. And I think that what we've seen is a couple of things. And I worked with very closely with Univision um, around 2012, I would say 2012 to 2016, and worked a lot on um, World Cup and soccer there. And there, there are some um, learnings about both of those sports that I think are interesting and kind of bode well for soccer more than NFL. One of the, uh, you know, the diversity, the sheer diversity of NBA players mm -hmm. is, you know, unrivaled. Um, and in, in terms of, you know, when you look at the NFL, as well as it's much, they're much smaller teams, right? So you don't right. have 40, 50, hundred people on a team. You've got much, you know, so each person can emerge more as a personality. And on top of that, the players and, you know, I'll, I'll credit the commissioners have done a very good job of, um, making the league way more inclusive and way more diverse, but also allowing, you know, the, even the, the guidelines of the style for the, for the NBA, NBA players and their traveling, allowing them to really show their individuality and peacock. And they've really embraced 
fashion in a big, big way. And that part of that is because their bodies are more, um, you know, suited to fashion perhaps than a, than a, a linebacker, right? Let's say right. against point. linebackers, yeah. but there's mm-hmm. just a physical imperative, right? And and so is that because of that, it's made them more attractive to sponsors and fashion and sneakers and whatever, all kinds of endorsements. So they've really been able to catapult themselves. What's interesting about soccer is soccer is one of the only human sized sports, right? You, you don't have to look like a linebacker. You don't have to be eight feet tall. You can be more human size. I think if soccer can go towards individualizing those players a little bit and they're smaller teams also, and they're very diverse, you know, if they can kind of soccer might want to follow the playbook of NBA um, because aside from Messi, I can't tell you anybody else on the inter Miami team. Right. And hopefully Miamians will be able to do that. But that, you know, it's still kind of a part of that is because when you watch a sport, you're so far away and things like that. But I think that, um, you know, the all these little factors really affect it. And I think it's super fascinating. Another sport we're looking at, and I want to give Sarah time to talk, but, you know, we're really interested in F1 as well because yeah, we just do. That, you know, aside from the fact that Max Verstappen wins every race. <laughs> yeah, that little problem, detail, uh, that, Linda, that, yeah, that is really annoying problem. to me as a fan. Right? Exactly. But, you know, they're trying to get women involved both in, in the seat, uh, in the bleachers and in the driver's seat. So, mm-hmm. you know, that could be interesting. But I think these, um, you know, these singular sports where you can really create personalities and and really have a, a sense of humanity. Um, those, I think, are ones that people will gravitate towards more. That's my guess. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you feel differently. No, I think you said it really well. I think, um, I think for sports as well, understanding the behavior of their fans is so key and crucial. Just to tie back to Taylor Swift and eras, and I'm not even a huge Taylor Swift fan musically. I think she has a few bangers, but I'm not a Swifty. I'm just fascinated from a business perspective by how she seeds fan culture so prominently in a like as a pivotal force in making her decisions. It's not an afterthought. It is the thought. And I do think there's a lot that sports um, can understand from that. And I think one of the first things I did when I moved to LA, I moved out here in 2018, was go to an LAFC game because I really wanted to understand how this new fandom had grown so fast, had replicated like a European soccer experience in terms of just like fan avidness in stadium and still, if you go there and you experience that, it's incredible. It's incredible to kind of see fans that, you know, you would think this team has been around for a hundred years, the way people are engaging with it. So I'm quite interested in looking to teams like that to understand how they cultivated that fandom. I also will say in your comment about sports tending to be reactive versus proactive, that is a really important insight and one that Linda and I actually encounter with a lot of clients. Often, if we are pointing people in a direction, if they're looking to be a pioneer in a space, there's not necessarily examples of someone who's done it exactly like that before to great success. And so I think one of the interesting things about 
uh, people, brands, teams, leagues emerging post pandemic was who would be willing to, you know, take kind of leaps of faith and use these challenges as opportunities without precedent. And so I think taking sort of interesting, innovative opportunities without necessarily examples of people who have done it exactly like that prior. That's really interesting to me. And I do think um, some of the newer sports leagues perhaps have opportunities to do that as well as established ones, really. So along those lines, the other permanent emergent, which I'm going to use in my class, I can't even tell you how many times now. I just want a little trademark royalty. There you go. I'm yeah. marking it. <laughs> like a little yeah. bell every time. Yeah. Um, Talk about women's sports and sports yeah. or sports played by women. Do you think now is they've said now is our time? Here we go. NWSL, WNBA, women's hockey, and a ton of um, investment over the last yeah. six months. Yeah, yeah. By so women. where do you do you think that's true? Judging it from a cool and cultural standpoint, and if so, why? Well, you know, Title IX is how old now? 50 years. 50, yeah. You know, I mean, you just growing up, women, young women are growing up with a very different view of what their opportunities can be. So, and, and, you know, you got women investing in leagues like Angel City in LA. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that, um, you know, as with everything, the money comes, you know, the, the, the women soccer players are still fighting for, you know, parody in the, in the, in the gym, you know, in their, in their gym setup and the WNBA is still trying to get charter flights and things like that. So there's, there's still an inequity, but I think there's just a lot of power because it's, uh, or a lot of momentum behind um, women's sports because um, it's just more normalized. Right. And so I think hopefully when the dollars can get up there and they can get the kind of viewers uh, maybe it will always lag behind men's sports. I unfortunately think that's sad, but true. Um, but I think the opportunities are certainly there and, you know, hopefully it will just continue to grow. And I think, you know, when you have very noisy, you know, equal pay fights, like what the women's soccer league so boldly did, you know, and more of more of those kind of movements in, in all the sports, I think, you know, we'll, we'll eventually get there, I think. I also would say that in this recent, you know, Women's World Cup, just seeing the fandom back to the fandom again, the way people were talking about it on social media and really sharing and excited to watch matches and learn outcomes, it felt more in the zeitgeist than in past experiences. And I think that's really cool and good progress. I will also say when you look at sort of studies on female dynamics in the workplace, women leadership traits. I think some of the challenges if within sports organizations tend to be cultural, right? Um, how teams communicate within teams with each other. A lot's been reported on that on the NFL teams specifically, how they communicate, speaking of Aaron Rodgers. Um, and so I think women, um, as they take on more leadership positions within sports, whether it's female sports leagues or just men's sports leagues as well, I think culturally they can have a big impact impact in sports, just becoming more humane, um, more emotionally balanced, et cetera, for player well-being. So I think I'm excited to see how women impact sports from that like organizational level as well. Yeah. 
I would also add, I just was thinking, you know, generationally um, speaking, you know, right now, Gen X is in the CEO seat. And imagine when Gen Z is in the CEO seat, that, you know, mm-hmm. might be a couple of decades. But again, the millennials will pave the way, but Gen Z has uh, a real sense of righting wrongs and injustices. And hopefully, you know, also, you know, for them, seeing women in power is increasingly more normalized. So you asked a question, Joe, before about changing old ways. Some of that is, you know, getting out of the way and having younger voices and younger, more diverse voices in the room to kind of, you know, rectify a more patriarchal view. Now I sound like I'm in a Barbie movie, but you guys know what I'm talking <laughs> Either about. Either that or I was just going to say, <laughs> and the presidential election is really reflecting that, but we don't have to go there right yeah, now. Oh so, anyway. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll pivot to another. Uh, we can do another thing. podcast on politics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure. I, that would be fun. Different school. Of um, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I want both your takes on this question. When you think about how any of your clients use the assets they have in a very fragmented media marketplace. Love to get your thoughts about the the distribution to create some of these cultural catalysts that you're hoping to get or or, or cultural uh, developments you're hoping to get. So you think about whether it's Cirque du Soleil or Inter Miami or the national, any of these brands, they've got a certain amount of assets, some of which are just, you know, just the pure brand assets. Some of it is media in the case of live events and things like that, licenses, et cetera. But you think about how fragmented the distribution marketplace is for uh, broadcast television, streaming television, audio, podcasts, radio, still some print, blogs, et cetera. What do you think is most important here circa 2023 and what, how do you think that will evolve during the rest of the, the decade? Not a small question. Tom. No, I'm sorry. that is like a big That's essay question. Like at the end of my, at please the end break of my out your crystal ball and make the prediction. Wow. I mean, Sarah, I'm willing to take a swing. Okay. You go for it. Because we're, we're working on a project where we're kind of asking ourselves that right now. So I'll just say, let me just say this. I think we find that many of our clients, and this is, no disrespect, because when I was a client, I probably did the same thing, drink their own Kool-Aid in terms of everybody sees everything they do, right? Exactly. And yeah. um, also humans, we we have a neuroscientist on our team who's great because we sometimes say like, why do we think like this? Because that's part of culture, right? Is the way we think. And so we've gotten great insight from him on on the way the human mind works. But you know, we're just not able to absorb all these messages and retain much of them. And that that you don't need a neuroscientist to tell you. So I think that, you know, we're in a super, super cluttered, you know, landscape. I don't even pay attention now to how many millions of messages we get today because a day, because it's, you know, exponentially larger every day. So I think understanding that, and I always say this sometimes to clients to get the point across, you know, you don't you don't want to have to make your consumer or your fan work so hard to get to what they want. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think really smart clients are overthinking, you know, logic. And I remember a great statistic that I won't be able to find the source of, but I've been saying for years, I used to know the source, it said that 90% of all brand decisions are made by emotion. 
first. I love that. And then the 10% that's residual is used after the purchase to justify the decision. Hmm. Oh, the reason that I bought an Apple iPhone is because it, you know, da, 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 and this megahertz and blah, blah, blah. But really that the, 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 the motivation was emotional. And so I think that from a brand perspective, you know, I always look for, you know, what is the thing that's going to create an emotional, elicit an emotional response or some kind of response, even if thinking through it, you know, is not, I mean, of course it needs to be thought through, but even if the consumer never thinks through, but they just like it, that's okay. And so I think just understanding that the consumer is overtaxed, doesn't have a lot of time, make it easy for them to find things, whether it's having, um, you know, consistent, I, you know, consistent branding, consistency of branding and simplicity of branding. I think what happens is for the people inside an organization, it gets boring, but for a consumer, it's just easier to recognize. So I think it's just kind of reconciling that, you, you know, don't be so too inside baseball. When you think about your brand, you have to really kind of think about that emotional connection. Yeah. And I'll say like simpler. I, I enjoy simplicity in terms of that. I think you can play once you have established a good baseline of brand awareness and consistency. So back in brand strategist days, that was something I was always really looking to have brands at each touch point feel consistent. So consumers know what they're getting from a specific brand. I think that can't be assumed at all in such a cluttered world. And in terms of like the specific makeup of how to s distribute or where to focus your resources, I think that is so bespoke to a brand based on the audience they're trying to connect. For a certain brand, they might be... They should put all their eggs in the digital basket because the conversations culturally that they're trying to intersect with are happening online. For some, it might be in person at certain experiences. So I think that's why Linda and I, even though we are not media planners, we are trying to figure out where the important cultural conversations are happening that a brand needs to be in. And based on what we find, that can help inform a media plan. So I think that's why um, the work, this, the, that cultural step is important because you should be making yourself part of conversations that are based on, you know, your goals, where, what, what are the conversations that are going to get you in front of the right audiences? I think that's a cultural question. Yeah. I, was, I also wanted to just add, I think that, um, some brands and, and we have a very strong point of view, not everyone may agree with it, but, you know, to get a mainstream audience, we really believe culturally you need to find the either subculture or group of people or conversations that will give your product or brand cred, right? Before it goes mainstream, because the perception now in a world of, you know, so much choice and curation and customization that um, you can make something that works for everybody, you know, it, yes, maybe maybe eventually you can have a Barbie because you're spending $150 million on the marketing, but they also had to make some key co constituents happy first and make sure that they hadn't disrespected the doll and things like that. We weren't involved in that, so I can't speak to it, but everything we work on has a mainstream goal, but we never start there. We have to start with who are the people that need to confer, you know, credibility first 
that other people will then understand that it's okay to to move forward with this. But can I just do a quick follow-up and, sure. and ask about the responsibility the brand is taking on? So for example, we all know how important social media is. Social media is hard. And a lot of brands, we've seen this throughout the history of social media, will check the box. They'll they'll start an account. They'll really not pay much attention to it. Right. They get to a plateau of followers. It's just not, it's just, it's just not that good. And it feels to me like if you're going to accept the responsibility of wanting to go out per your last couple of points into the market to engage, it, it's a heavy contact sport. And you've got to be willing to engage on in the right way in the right platform. So yeah. you just described kind of a, a, a nesting idea of cultural trends, like let's say Reddit. There are, there are plenty of businesses, and I'll just use sports, that have done stuff on Reddit, but they're not really working Reddit. There are brands yeah. that have done stuff on TikTok, but they're not really working TikTok. Yeah, I think you're I kind think, of required either all in or not at all. Yeah, I think what you're making the distinction that we like to make between a transaction and a relationship, mm-hmm. right? So if you're on, if your brand is on social media and you're saying, "Hey, we have this new product," you know, buy it or whatever, essentially, but you're just right. promoting and marketing, and we know for sure millennials and Gen Z do not want to be marketed. Right. 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 But if the social media, you know, team instead asks a question about, you know, that's related to the product as when was the last time you did this or when was your best this or what could you, you know, if you were looking for something and elicit again, a conversation, a conversation just means there's a back and forth. Right. And so I think that it's, there are still a lot of brands who don't understand that. And they're still putting their, you know, watch this show at nine o'clock on Wednesday, as opposed to giving me a reason why. And I think Sarah and I always say data tells you what culture tells you why. And our, our idea is to help our clients achieve a, a level of cultural empathy with their audience so they can have a conversation. Even if they don't are not the audience, they're not an insider, they can still understand that audience's mm-hmm. point of view or that culture's point of view. And by the way, you know, Sarah talked about the curve, which we use, every brand has a different curve, mm-hmm. right? Because as we talked about before, we we carve a bespoke POV. But understanding, you know, one brand could have different curves with different audiences even. It just really is about not being generic, which nobody wants right now. And being very, um, you know, people, especially with social media now, it's interesting. Social media has become increasingly a tool where people just want to be seen and heard. They want to be acknowledged, especially by brands. If someone sends in a note to a brand saying, oh, I had a bad experience, they just want someone to answer. And maybe you get a free product or or had a good experience. They want someone to acknowledge them. And, and it's amazing how... Uh, you know, a lot of brands have figured that out. Luckily, uh, customer service is, you know, a big thing on social media. But, you know, look at one of the most famous social media brands of all, Oreo, you know, who just essentially, and to Sarah's point about monoculture, was speaking to a monocultural moment in the Super Bowl in New Orleans when the lights went out, yep. right? And they said, you can dunk in the dark. And it was like, well, they talked about their product. They talked about what people were going through. It was relevant. You know, the word relevance is what all the brands want. Um, And they weren't selling, but did they create goodwill? And, you know, Oreo seems to be doing okay. So, um, so, you know, it's just interesting. It's really about thinking about it like a relationship. I, as a general rule of thumb, 
think it's a good life rule. Do less and do it better. So I think, you know, if you're going to, going to, going to spend your time and resources on something, then make sure you have a reason to be there and something to add to the conversation. That's typically a good rule for culture. We've been working on a lot of legacy brands, legacy content that's rebooting in the marketplace. And that's kind of what we always ask is like, what's the reason to come back and make sure it's a good reason. Cool. Hey, um, Tom, so Sarah and Linda just answered our second to last question about right. kind of career advice. But we do have two. One is career advice. The last question that we like to ask, uh, and if both of you could answer is, with everything going on, especially kind of what Tom alluded to now with looking forward, how do you keep up to date? Like, where are the places that you go? What are the, the kind of the tent poles, whether it's podcasts or newsletters, that you both listen to, read, follow, so that when you're going in, you're giving your best advice to the clients, either new or existing? Mm -hmm. We get this question a lot. And I always feel like I'm slightly disappointing when I answer because it's such a grab bag of what's interesting me at the National Enquirer. No. It is no, not National Enquirer, but certainly, well, first of all, for people who want to kind of see what we're, what we're interested in from a media and content perspective, we have a weekly newsletter, not to plug it, but it's called That's Culture. Okay. You can plug it. And you can no. see when you look at that, how incredibly eclectic our sources are. And I think in that Times profile, one of the things the reporter was specifically fascinated by was just how random our cultural influences are. We're looking for things with momentum. So if like country music is having a moment, or I think it's going to be having a moment, I'll be listening to a lot of country music. Could be the same, the article referenced WrestleMania, how there were a lot of a lot of celeb and non-wrestling presence this year. So I'm really interested in watching what's going on in the wrestling world. In terms of a daily, on a daily basis, I think the volume of articles, it's more of a volume than where to look because there's a lot of good media resources out there. Substack certainly has really incredible journalists who can give you profound thoughts from their, you know, direct. So I would say subscribe to a lot of Substacks. Um, but I basically have you know, a hundred tabs open at the start of every morning and work my way through them <laughs> as you get to the end of the day. So I think the um, the name of the game for me is really volume. I'm trying to skim as much of culture as possible. And then on a more sort of like take a step back note, I try to get away from digital. Part of why Linda and I operate our business remotely is so that we can also be in culture. I want to be outside, see what's happening in outdoor culture. I want to listen to conversations that are happening out in the world. I want to see what museums are offering when it comes to exhibits. So I think we just try to be, and I say this term and it's sort of woo woo, but like children of the universe, we're just trying to um, be anthropologists in every sense of the word. So if you are a curious person, and you walk around with an open eyes and open ears, ready to observe, you can be very insightful people culturally. Yeah, I would just only add, um, we have an incredible coterie and coalition of amazing analysts that are also remote, and they're independent because those are the best kinds of cultural analysts, people who want to be nomads in the world. 
and you know we have them in different states and different countries and they have different backgrounds generations some of them are not born in the states and try to have as much diversity as possible but they're all really super intelligent uh, people that are extremely excited about things that are going on in culture. So we get to pluck their brains. It's not, thankfully, it's not just myself and Sarah and especially yes. a certain kind of client looking for a certain specialty. Um, you know, we can find that, but we also have at our disposal for any project, we will tap um, people in the academic world. I might call one of you. Uh, we tap journalists, we tap creators, we tap, you know, people that are investigating sort of the the forward edges of any topic so that if it's not something that we can consume on our own, it's information that other smart people are consuming. So I would say the advice I would give for anybody who wants to stay in touch with culture, A, of course, you can subscribe, as Sarah says, to Culture Porn. We uh, This week's, uh, our edition of our newsletter just came out today, and we feature Hard Knocks and Oliver Anthony's. Oh, nice. Richmond. Well, you got to tell us what did what'd you say about hard knocks? I, I had a very short one because I'm experimenting, experimenting with short copy, but I said, Aaron Rodgers tries to be likable with his new team. Yeah. It, feel, it feels like it's working. It seems to be working. But, I yeah. also included um, Netflix's Tour de France. Uh, oh, nice. I, I, watched, I watched some of that. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's very nice. intense. But, you know, <laughs> even like the Oliver Anthony Richmond, North of Richmond, you know, had to listen to it because there were so many articles being written about right. it. I have to hear it for myself. And that happens a lot, too, is just something will will come up and then we need to inve- investigate it. But again, I think the most important thing, if you know, if you want to stay up with culture, stay in touch with culture, just the way people do book clubs, you know, you could create a culture club and just ask mm. people what they're seeing and what they're finding. And because now, and we also find this, especially with younger, you know, Gen Z, especially they're natural analysts because they have grown up being, you know, they're digital natives and they're very aware of marketing and propaganda. And although they love conspiracy theories, Gen Z, but, um, you know, as, as some of our presidential candidates do, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just, sometimes it's really just taking the temperature of what the conversations are out there through all these different but uh, methods, but Sarah is right. Volume is, is one of our strategies. And I, I really do want to credit our team because they are so much of yeah. what they offer is so much of what animates us um, of those. If I have a hundred articles open, three quarters of them came from our own analysts. And so I think um, there's people for whom chatting about what's happening in the zeitgeist or what's about to happen in the zeitgeist is naturally very exciting. So the more you can talk with people, I think that's can't do culture in a vacuum and certainly not solo. And Joe, the way AI is going, you know, we could just ask chat GPT to let us know right. what we should be thinking about culture. Yeah. You know, we've talked about <laughs> that. I'm a little worried about that for many. Yeah, everybody is. <laughs> We actually held a, we, because, you know, when it became such a spicy topic after the release of Chappie GPT, we, you know, we do, we will hold a salon with smart thinkers and people that are involved in the space to try to figure out what's going on. So Sarah likes to say we're cultural investigators. I think that that is really true. And when clients come to us, we really are always, you know, saying to them, what are the questions you are looking for answers to? Nice. Nice. Coach Richardson, you want to wrap us up here? Yeah, boy, what a fascinating conversation. This is awesome. I, I know that this has inspired me to change my LinkedIn profile and Twitter profile to 
permanently emergent. That's going to be my new, my new thing. <laughs> That's a great uh, t-shirt, by the way. I'm going to get that in a t-shirt. I love it. Yeah, true. We'll give you guys. I love it. I'm so glad that tickled you. Between the um, the two partnerships. Nice. Um, well, Linda and Sarah, thank you so much for giving us your time and sharing all these amazing insights. It's such a fascinating topic. Thank really you. We it. love yeah. you for inviting us. Yeah, we're nerds about it. We love talking to anybody who's interested in culture. Yeah. So I would say to anybody listening, check out Cultique. Um, you mentioned the um the Substack culture porn. Is there any other way people can reach out if they're interested in getting to you? Um, we can, we have an email that we sometimes answer. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, to be so lame about it. Hello at cultique.co. We okay. answer, we answer. We answer. I just sometimes not sure. Uh, <laughs> and um, we have an Instagram, which is at cultique.co. Excellent. And okay, that's about cool. it. I noticed that um, you guys didn't have um, a dedicated website. Is that an yeah. accurate observation that is okay. we have what we found is culture moves so fast the minute you put something up there it looks dated and we yeah. hated that it's so we point. decided yeah and we're a referral only business so we just decided instead of trying to um you know deal with a situation that i mean literally if i put something up today tomorrow it's dated and it drives me crazy so it, we just thought that more dynamic versions of platform, you know, dynamic platforms like Instagram and, and Substack would, would service best. But, you know, our, our ethos at Cultique is be water, which we borrowed from Bruce Lee. That probably is a t-shirt. Um, but be water is an ethos about, you know, being flexible and slightly enigmatic, but also, um, got literally going with the flow. And we adopted that in 2020, which was there could not have been a better time to adopt it. So we're very fluid in our business model. We have changed our business model over the last three years. And we're very glad because we're in a recession right now. And I think that, um, you know, I had to close a business before in my life and that was not fun. So it's, it's just trying to be, you know, we're trying to be one with culture as our business. And nice. so, yeah, and uh, we'll see. All right. So Joe, when we're ready to relaunch the cusp show, we will call Linda yes. and Sarah. Please. And have them sit with sit with us so we can understand how we should be more culturally culturally relevant. I think we do and, okay. I know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, Linda and Sarah, thanks so much. Shout out to Cultique. And we will put the New York Times article in the show notes because it's worth reading, particularly those of you who like, as I do, uh, Cirque du Soleil. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's really a, a, an amazing example of how the stuff we just talked about is coming to life with the real, sounds like a real time engagements happening now yeah. and it'll be interesting to see where it goes. So thanks uh, so much. If you're ever in New York, look us up. Um, and I'll just finish Joe by mentioning, if you want to add anything, you can um, remind everybody that we've got our annual sports business conference. It's all set for October 6th. It's a one day conference, easy peasy starting, I think at nine in the morning, go until four, got a good group of folks coming and if you're so inclined, if you're local or you want to come in for it, it's a great get together. And it's only now, Joe, six weeks away. Yep. In fact, I think it's six weeks from today since mm -hmm. we're recording on a Friday. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. If, you've any, if you have any ideas or suggestions for topics or shows or individuals, let us know. We're all ears. Joe, have a good weekend. Enjoy this last week of summer. 
enjoy the Jets Giants preseason game, which you forgot we forgot to mention when we opened. Aaron Rodgers will be playing tomorrow night on TV. That's what by the time we see this, the more likable, the more likable version, the more likable Aaron Rodgers will be playing on TV, and everyone, every New York Jets fan in the world will be holding their breath with each snap (laughs) (laughs) because I I, I wouldn't even finish the sentence. Um, You you worry about preseason. They've been long suffering fans. We know (laughs) exactly. Uh, Anyway, thanks guys. It was really enjoyable. Joe, have a great weekend. Have a, um, I'm not sure if we'll do one more show before Labor Day, but we'll hopefully we'll pull in and pull one off next week. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you on the next episode.